Hey, I'm Tyler Olson. The show is Money Mediator. I'm an investment advisor and financial planner for medical professionals as they transition out of their training. Our busy lives and sometimes even our emotions can have a big impact on our financial decisions. And the goal here is to insert insert an objective view into the process, a mediator between you and your money. Now, let me just say at the outset that anything that we discuss in this episode of Money Mediator uh, should not be taken or perceived as investment advice. Uh, Today, we're gonna be applying this to the financial implications of those who pursue funding for medical training through the military pathway. And I'm pleased to have Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Josh Tyler with me to discuss this. Thanks so much for being with me today, Josh. Sure, thanks for having me, glad to be here. Would you mind uh, giving a bit of background on on yourself and and your career? Sure, and I will start with a requisite disclaimer for the DOD that I'm just here as a individual that's been through this pathway sharing input and advice for anybody considering this pathway. Um, These views are my opinion and mine alone and do not reflect the views of the Department of Defense, the United States Air Force, or the Defense Health Agency. And with that out of the way, uh, I'm an active duty general and colorectal surgeon stationed at Keesler Air Force Base, Mississippi. I'm also the consultant to the U.S. Air Force Surgeon General for colorectal surgery and the chair of the Robotic Surgery Steering Committee for all of Defense Health Agency. And to give a little brief background on kind of my path to to military medicine, um, and we'll get into some of these things later in our discussion uh, in terms of where your commitment points, where your scholarship opportunities happen in your decision-making algorithm in terms of pursuing this path. But I did ROTC, Reserve Officers Training Corps, for undergrad at Florida State, incurred a four-year commitment from that. Went from there to Uniformed Services University for Medical School, which is in Bethesda, Maryland, co-located with Walter Reed. That is a seven-year commitment. And there are some important differences between USIS and HPSP, which is probably the more conventional route to military uh, entry uh, and getting medical school funded. From USIS, I went to Brook Army Medical Center and did a six-year general surgery uh, training program, which which had one year of research in there, uh, and straight from there to uh, Washington University in St. Louis for colorectal fellowship. I graduated there in 2014 and have been stationed at Keesler ever since. That includes one deployment to the Middle East during that time. Uh, I also am married, have been married since uh, right before starting med school, so in between undergrad and med school, and I have four children ages four to 16. Nice, nice. Well, you've had a, uh, you've had a very long career path so far, and you're, you're still in the thick of it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Still counting down that commitment. That's right. So, yeah. Um, thank you for sharing some of those details. Um, you know, and I like, of course, we um, we talked a bit about some of the you know, some of the more particular points in a in the career path of uh, you know of someone that wants to pursue med- medical education, but also uh, to do it through the military. Um, there's certain points in their career when decisions make a huge difference in what's going to happen to them and what their commitment level is going forward. 
And I was hoping that we could talk about those things. And one of the things that um, you had mentioned to me, and I'd welcome you to expound on, are understanding the implications of commitment choices. Would you elaborate on that? Absolutely. And I think the big thing, and, and obviously both Tyler and I are, are very active on Twitter, and I've shared some just random thoughts about this process and how we need to explain it better um, on the military side of things and, and really received a, a pretty tremendous uh, response from you know either current pre-meds, medical students, residents, even fellows that have gone the military route. And I think there's a lot of uh, uncertainty um, throughout the process. And I, I think hopefully we can resolve some of those things today. Um, you know, when people are looking at these contracts, be it undergrad or even med school, you know, what you're thinking about in your perspectives when you're 21 versus when you're, you know, in the thick of your commitment and, you know, like I am 39, um, you, you just have a different life perspective. Obviously a lot can happen in two decades. And so the things that you're thinking about, you know, when you're either 18 and taking on a ROTC scholarship or going to a service academy, which are kind of the two most common undergraduate commitments from, from a time standpoint, um, you're thinking about, you know, how am I going to get school paid for? Same for medical school. You know, if you're if you're in your early 20s, you're thinking about how am I going to get school paid for? You're not thinking about, you know, how does this impact my earning potential um, and, and uh, the revenue that I can generate throughout my career lifespan? And so I think, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, hopefully I can share some of my experiences and, and help people to consider those things. So, you know, really breaking that down into you know, we've already kind of touched on the potential undergraduate commitments, which I'd say are, you know, probably less than 20% of, of active duty physicians have undergrad commitment. More commonly, the medical school commitment is either HPSP, meaning you go to a civilian med school, it's paid for, you incur a four-year commitment, or you go to USIS where you were actually on active duty during medical school and you were paid as an active duty second lieutenant. So you are paid a salary school is free and you incur that seven year commitment. So yes, school is free, but the, the catch is that you are committing your time down the road when you have a much higher earning potential. And so you've got to think about those cost offsets in terms of making the right financial decision for you. Mm. Similarly, going into kind of going into the GME uh, platforms, um, you know, generally, if you have a military commitment, they will try to fill the military residency programs first. And there are military residency programs for most things with obviously limited spots. Um, if you do not match to a military residency program, there are two options, both civilian deferred and civilian sponsored. And the same applies to fellowships where there are far less active duty fellowships. We still have some, but, but not as many, especially surgical fellowships. There are very few active duty outside of trauma. Um, and the same, the same applies for fellowships. Far more of our military docs that do fellowships, uh, especially on the surgical side, end up in either deferred or sponsored scenarios. And what that means is that if you are in a deferred uh, training program, be it residency or fellowship, you are essentially away from the military that during that time. So you make what your civilian peers in your training program make per your institution, their salary, benefits, et cetera. 
versus a sponsored, uh, say a sponsored fellowship, you are actually compensated as an active duty, whatever you are. So in my example, when I was a colorectal fellow, I was paid as an active duty attending general surgeon, which is substantially higher than what I would have made as a, uh, just a civilian fellow. Now the trade-off is it for deferred fellowship or residency, um, you don't incur any additional commitment. That's the key point with, with the deferral. Whereas in civilian sponsored, because you are compensated at a higher level, you incur commitments. So one and two year fellowships have an additional two year commitment to whatever your existing commitment is. Um, and a three year fellowship incurs an additional three year commitment, if that makes sense. Yeah. So when you're, what you're talking about is essentially like there is some opportunity for, a, you know, income during these during these training programs, but then you are, you have to offset them with the future commitment years where you're not earning as much as you could outside correct. of the military. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. And I'd say, you know, looking at military surgeons, obviously this is all highly specialty uh, specific. Um, I'd say in general surgery, you probably make about 50% of what your civilian peers would make as an attending Obviously, there is regional geographic um, variation in this. Um, and then as you get increasingly subspecialized, you may dip down into 20 to 25 percent of what you're, you would make you know, out of the military. So every year that you, you know, that you add to your commitment, you are decrementing your earning potential by that amount. And so what I always try to encourage everyone to do is keep your commitment as short as possible. And then that way you have the control. If you love the military and if you love the mission, you can stay in, but then the choice is yours. Um, a lot of times there are, if your commitment is complete, there are additional bonuses that you can sign to go anywhere from one to four years to add on to your commitment. You can increase your compensation through those bonuses. The key point there is your commitment has to be complete for you to be able to, to get those additional bonuses. Okay. So, you know, every year of commitment, you are, you are, you've got to realize, you know, how much you're decrementing your compensation uh, to stay, to remain on active duty. So if you keep your commitment as short as possible, that you have all the control in that scenario. Okay. At what level of commitment does the, like, does the pension start to affect your decision-making? So, and that's a great question. The, um, the old school military retirement used to be what they call high three. Um, it, and I am still kind of grandfathered into that. It, it doesn't exist anymore for anybody coming in that has not been on active duty. So the old high three model was they took your three highest years of earning, average them, and then, and then they take a percentage of that based on how many years of service you have at retirement. And it's a sliding scale as the, in terms of the percentage, it starts at 20 years. But if you stayed for 30, it's obviously a higher percentage. And that's what you get paid annually um, once you've retired for your retirement pension. The new model is through the thrift savings plan. And um, there is some component of matching. And I won't belabor the, the specifics on that for the purposes of our conversation today. But basically, if you are investing a component of your salary into the thrift savings plan, which I would encourage everyone to do, um, and there are a lot of great you know, podcasts out there talking about TSP specifically, so I don't think we need to, to rehash that for today, but the military will match 
a certain percentage of that. So now, um, whereas in the old system, if you walked away at 18 years, you got nothing. Whereas now, you know, with the new retirement model, if you've been doing this matching program for 18 years, you're still going to walk away with, with something. Um, so everyone now coming on active duty is required to go into this newer um, matching system, the, the new retirement plan. Um, and that, so any of our listeners that are not already committed, that's the retirement plan you would come in under. Hmm. Okay. So that the TSP, like I mean, what, it, what it sounds like to me is a lot like the, the transition with like, uh, with, uh, non-governmental jobs is a similar transition where it used to be pensions and now it's a 401k transition from a pension for 20 years and longer to the TSP. Um, so it's, it's very personally driven in order for it right. to work. Yep. And there's conventional, there's Roth, and then there, you know, there are life cycle funds that, you know, kind of balance your risk uh, based on how close you are to your targeted retirement date. Um, or you can invest in the individual funds, you know, yourself uh, through the TSP. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. So there's, um, so as far as the timing of commitment, that's not so critical now. Now it's more, you're not, you're not looking at like zero to 20, like such a huge gap. There's lots of, there's lots of good solutions in between depending on your lifestyle and your goals and what you want to work toward. Absolutely. And I think for, for people to understand, I don't think I explained this earlier, whatever your commitment is. So for me, I had a four year commitment from undergrad. I had a seven year commitment from medical school. So that's 11. The clock does not start ticking until you are done with training. And so I did a six-year residency, one-year fellowship. So I had already, I'm seven years out from medical school graduation date, and now I owe 11 years. Um, so that carries me to 18. And so then, you know, for me, and under the old retirement plan, it, it just makes sense for me to stay my two years and then retire at 20, which this gets, this all gets very murky. But because you're on active duty at USIS, those four years of active duty at the military med school do not tack on to your time towards retirement until you hit 20. And then the day you hit 20, you automatically go to 24 in the pay scale and for that retirement percentage. So my commitment will carry me to 18. I stay two, two more to get to 20 at which time I automatically go up to 24, if that makes sense. But the key point is the clock does not start ticking until you're done with your training. So if you do a shorter residency, and you only have a four-year commitment, you could have your military obligation fulfilled seven years out from med school graduation. Say you did emergency medicine and all you had was an HPSP commitment. Okay, okay. And now uh, something else that you had mentioned, I think, was that once you're out of training, so let's say you do an emergency med medicine residency and you've got four years to go, um, there are like there are some dynamics in order to keep you sharp, right? Like perhaps there's like, like if you're on active duty and you're like, and you're, you know, you're, uh, I don't, I don't know if that applies to that specialty in particular, but to keep your, to keep your training sharp, what do a lot of military doctors need to do? And that's a great question. I think that this is something that we, we certainly don't advertise widely, but many of our military, and that's why I break it into procedural specialties. So I'm not saying surgery specific, 
But if you were in a, a specialty where you're either intubating, placing lines and chest tubes, we generally don't have extremely high acuity uh, complex patients in our military hospitals. Obviously, there are some exceptions. And again, there is great for, for listeners that are, you know, may work at, at Brook Army or at Walter Reed. Um, you know, th- there are obviously big differences between Walter Reed and, you know, off at Air Force Base uh, or uh, other some of our smaller military hospitals. But generally speaking, we are much lower volume than our civilian peers. That's the nature of our system. And there's a lot of conversations happening about um, that skill atrophy. What does it mean? Additionally, we're not as busy in the deployed setting as we used to be. And so many of our deployments are very low volume and the the resulting skill atrophy that happens from not operating or not doing these procedures that are key to your skill set and your earning potential. Um, The the phenomenon of skill atrophy is very real. Um, The military is aware that this is a problem. But until now, we don't have many great solutions during your active duty time. Obviously, moonlighting at a very busy place is win-win. You get more volume, increase your skill set, and you, you know, make some, some, you know, 1099 revenue, have some additional earning potential there. But that can't be a permanent solution. So I would caution, you know, the listeners to realize that if you have a long commitment, say your commitment is 10 years and you've been very low volume, and have not been able to find a solution for that, that may impact what I what I like to call your post-military employability. You know, how fast are you? What are your surgical outcomes? Are you going to be competitive in the market as you're looking to apply for jobs? Um, and really having an eye to what your uh, career plan is when your military time is done. You've really got to think about, you know, based on how long I'm in, not only am I potentially sacrificing additional revenue down the line with, you know, prolonged commitment, but I also am existing in a relatively low volume environment. Uh, for example, we had a orthopedic surgeon at, at my base that had done a total joint fellowship, uh, straight from residency and came to Keesler, did mostly general orthopedics for four years. Um, he was one of the, one of the few orthodox we had, so he couldn't focus exclusively on joints. When his four-year commitment was up, he went back and repeated the same fellowship because he felt that his skills had atrophied for a very narrow, subspecialized field of orthopedics. And so, you know, that's a very real phenomenon existing in this low-volume environment in terms of what it does to your your clinical skills uh, as well as your your employability post-military life. Hmm. Okay. So do you have any suggestions if like if someone's in this predicament where they're in the middle of a long commitment, there's not a lot of opportunity to keep their skills sharp. Um, are there things that maybe some haven't thought of, but where they, where they actually could? Sure. So I think that the, the easiest answer for that is, is moonlighting. I think, again, it's a win-win if you're moonlighting in a busy place. And that's the key caveat is that if you, if you're moonlighting and doing nothing, you know, then that doesn't really help you. But if you can seek out moonlighting opportunities that are at busy places, that's a great way to augment your, um, your volume as well as make, you know, generate additional revenue on the side. Obviously the disclaimer I'll give there is off all off duty employment, as we call it, ODE has to be approved through your command, but you know, moonlighting is generally widely, um, accepted and, and that's based on your local commander, um, and I think our, our local hospital commanders are realizing that moonlighting is good for our, for our docs because they are 
augmenting their volume and the complexity of patients that they're seeing in doing so. So moonlighting is the, the kind of the quick way. Uh, we do have some agreements called training affiliation agreements or TAAs. I have one in my practice. Um, my partner and I were the, the only two colorectal surgeons in the state of Mississippi. And so as we didn't, you know, we have six other general surgeons at the base. Um, we don't want to take all the colon surgery from them. They still want to do some. And so my base loans us downtown to essentially the private sector uh, where we can have access to private sector volume. The catch is that you're doing that work on military time and thus you cannot be compensated for it. It is essentially volunteer work. Um, so that's a great way to augment your volume. It's just, there's no revenue generation that happens in the process. So that's, I'd say 90%, maybe even 95% of my volume in my practice is TAA based, which is great because I'm, I'm much, much busier than if I just did the colorectal surgery that came to me from the base. So I've been able to keep my skills sharp. Um, and I feel like I could be competitive, you know, when, when I'm able to retire in six years because I've had access to that volume to keep my skills up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. These sound like, like, I mean, it, it's good, good suggestions and not too difficult to achieve. You just need to know that you need to do it so that you don't, let time pass and the uh, skill atrophy, as you mentioned. So Right. And TAAs are, the Air Force has been, a, obviously I'm biased here, but the Air Force has been a little more forward thinking with TAAs um, and, and has embraced them for, you know, a decade or more. But the Army and the Navy are coming around to the to the idea of TAAs and how they can can help us uh, answer some of this, this volume issue, whether that's, you know, trauma uh, associated folks being embedded in a trauma center, working on civilians and having access to civilian volume or, you know, in our other surgical subspecialties, you know, having access and it doesn't just apply to surgery. So the TAA contract and TAA language is not service specific. So, you know, I would encourage any army or Navy listeners that would be interested in pursuing that. There are certainly, you know, there's great precedent and there are some examples of where that's been very successful. Obviously it's very highly location dependent. We could do a whole hour long talk about, how to set up a TAA and what are the, you know, the local politic implications of that, that sort of thing. Um, that's kind of another conversation, but it, it's something that should be available to all, all three services. Okay. All right. Um, one other question I had for you because the, like there, there is of course, when I think about different specialties in medicine, like even, even on the civilian side, there's a, there's a tremendous uh, difference in, you know, like a family medicine residency versus neurosurgery. Um, that would apply, obviously, as far as commitment in the military, I imagine. And then also the compensation is significantly different depending on the specialty, right? Sure, absolutely. And I would say I think, you know, primary care tends to do fairly well compared to their civilian peers. I don't think there is a huge um, discrepancy between the salary for active duty primary care versus civilian. Obviously, civilian is always going to be higher, but there are some things in the military we don't have to pay for, malpractice, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, as you um, uh, look at basically just say MGMA, uh, median salary by specialty, you know, obviously 
um, you know, the more subspecialized you get, especially if you get into procedure. And that's why I always say this is not just surgical, it's just procedure-based specialties. You know, the salary disparity grows um, as you increasingly subspecialize, particularly with the procedure-based specialties. So big, big discrepancy from, say, an anesthesia pain doc that's active duty versus an anesthesia pain that is private sector. Um, and so all of those things are the things you don't think about when you're signing that contract in your early 20s in terms of what it's going to do to your your earning potential down the road. Not just, and again, this isn't just about revenue generation. It's about volume. It's about, you know, skill currency, skill maintenance. And, and you know, everyone's got to make the right decision for them in terms of, you know, um, what, what makes the most sense and what is what is the most acceptable um, from a, a financial standpoint mm, yeah so that, I mean it, it sounds like like with any other financial plan it is important to take some time before whether you know you're talking about what what specialty you're interested in um, what it's you know if you if you want your medical education to be paid for, what is it costing you down the line? Like there's lots of timing and money implications that need to be balanced. It, it doesn't sound like an easy thing to just figure out in an hour. Sounds like it's something that needs to like- Oh, absolutely not. Some thought. I mean, and like, are there, are there um, opportunities like among peers or like in, in, in terms of mentorship, like to help, uh, younger ones to be able to like have a place to turn to. I mean, obviously we're talking about this right now, so hopefully people will listen and benefit, but are there like one-on-one -on -one opportunities that younger ones could take advantage of? There's some, there's some informal things. And, and again, I, I think Twitter is a wonderful platform, obviously at times, not, not, uh, you know, arguing about various topics, but really to connect with people. Um, and so I, I, the biggest thing I can encourage people to consider is connect with somebody who is maybe five years, 10 years ahead of you on the path you want to be on. So, you know, say you want to do uh, internal medicine or rheumatology via the military path. I think the best way is get in touch with somebody that's, that's, you know, an active duty attending rheumatologist and just pick their brain, ask them, you know, how they enjoy their, their practice, um, the, the depth and breadth of, of their clinical practice, talk to them about financial Im implications and, you know, what they've loved and what they might as, you know, if they could go back and do it different, what they might've changed. Um, and again, the, I think the bottom line for everybody is if you can keep your commitment as short as possible, then you really, um, you know, you retain some, some control for yourself, which I think is important. Um, and that could apply to say you only have a four year HPSB commitment, um, but you really want to do plastic surgery. You know, there are some people who, who choose to go be an active duty attending general surgeon for four years. And then when your military commitment is up, then go back to fellowship. Um, and that way you don't, um, you haven't been a, a plastic surgeon for four years in the military um, in a lower volume uh, setting, and you don't have the skill atrophy that comes with that. So there are a lot of ways to be creative. And, and additionally, if you love the mission, but you still think it's best for you to serve your time and get out, you can continue to serve in the reserves That's the, or, or the, the guard. Those are still certainly uh, definite options. The key, the key piece there is if I retire at, you know, for me, it'll be 24 years uh, at 45, my retirement pension starts paying immediately. 
Whereas, you know, and I could get out two years before retirement. If I get out two years before retirement and I finish those two years in the reserves, that pension's not going to start paying until 65. So that's a 20 year difference in terms of the payout and when it starts. Um, so for me, staying in makes the most sense financially. So I think there, these are all, you know, kind of important options and possibilities for, for everyone to recognize and everyone's story, everyone's, you know, decision um, algorithm is, is different in terms of what works best for you. Mm, yeah. Wow. That, yeah, that, that is a huge amount of income that you would lose out on just for two more years. So, yeah. And actually not yeah. to mention the health, the health benefit as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's another, that's another big point. You know, um, you mentioned like you're talking about like retirement. So that leads me to the last main point that I was hoping we could discuss. And that is the actual plan for retirement, like in terms of uh, the, you know, the types of retirement vehicles that are available. You mentioned that uh, the, uh, the TSP um, and, and uh, of course that's, that's something that you feel like people should take advantage of right away. Right. Absolutely. And if I could go back and give my younger self advice, it would have been now I got married very early on. I had kids very young. I was 22. I think when I had my, my oldest who just turned 16, um, I would have told myself max the TSP from the, from the get go. Um, you're, you're just coming into money. You're getting, you know, your first, you know, full-time, um, paycheck. And so if you, if you start those investment strategies early, you, you may not miss it, right? You just have to budget better, budget smarter, um, and pay and pay yourself first. I mean, I, I think listening to a lot of financial podcasts, you, all of you say that is, you know, pay yourself first, um, from a, from a retirement investment strategy. Now, again, you know, my counterpoint is I was a second Lieutenant single income family, um, in Washington DC before the housing bubble burst. So, you know, trying to stretch every dollar back then was, was, you know, I couldn't even imagine, you know, contributing 10% of my, of my income into the TSP, but I, I should have found a better way to do it. And I, and I've been much more intentional, uh, with that over probably the last five years, but looking at compound interest, I missed out on a significant, uh, vehicle and opportunity by not being, uh, more dedicated to that early on. Um, and then the other thing is most military docs uh, do have some some side hustle, you know, off-duty employment uh, income. Most of that's in 1099 format. And so, you know, the TSP is my retirement vehicle for uh, my active duty earnings. And again, all off-duty employment needs to be improved, approved by your your command. Um, so be, you know, tread carefully there. And I would ensure that, that you always seek approval uh, before you engage in, in off-duty employment opportunities. Um, but your 1099 income, you know, talking to my accountant and talking to some investment advisors, uh, SEP IRA made the most sense for me related to that 1099 income. So that's not only decreasing my tax liability on the 1099 income, it's, it's an additional, uh, retirement savings vehicle for me. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of been my strategy, uh, because the TSP doesn't help me on that 1099 income. So the, the SEP IRA has been another, you know, good vehicle for me for that. Now I have a question for you. Um, as far as moonlighting is concerned, this might be a like too difficult a question to pinpoint, but could you give me a range of like earnings potential for moonlighting for a person in your position? 
Sure. And it's obviously highly specialty specific. Um, I would also say it's highly regional. Um, so, you know, and just say like for a general surgeon wanting to cover a level one trauma center, they may require and probably would require a trauma, trauma critical care fellowship training and certification, board certification. Um, obviously, that's going to pay much higher than if I, you know, early in, and I can just share a couple anecdotes about how I started moonlighting. Um, most people early on will go through locums companies. Um, and, you know, I went, flew out to uh, central Kansas. So, you know, obviously uh, two flights and then about a two and a half hour car drive um, for three days of moonlighting where I didn't, you know, really wasn't that busy. Um, grew tiresome, but it was the first opportunity I had, and that was through a, a locums company. Then I found one within the state of Mississippi that was about a six-hour drive to a very, very busy hospital. So I would work 16, 18-hour days at a critical access hospital, but the but the compensation was very good. So that was also through a locums company. So I would say generally the two ways that it's done is you'll get a flat fee for X number of hours a day. So a lot of times that starts around anywhere from a thousand to 1500. And what those companies will generally offer you out of the gate is we're going to give you that for four hours. And then we're going to pay you, you know, 150 an hour, 200 an hour after that for whatever work you're doing. Um, and sometimes, you know, you can, you can bill, you know, calls from the hospital. Some contracts don't allow you to do that. So I would be really, uh, really look at that contract as you're negotiating it. Over time, I negotiated those rates down to whatever the flat fee was for two hours rather than four. And then your hourly rate kicks in much, you know, earlier in the day. Um, and then I negotiated both of those, you know, numbers to, to become higher as I um, gradually did more work. The other thing is, you know, these locum companies are in this for a reason. So they're, they're making, you know, some money off of these contracts as well. So a lot of times, whatever physician is engaging in these agreements, you can make a lot more money if you negotiate directly with the hospital that needs the coverage itself. The catch there is, is that the locums companies really streamline malpractice coverage because your military malpractice will not cover your moonlighting activity. So you've got to have malpractice coverage there with tail. That's really important. Um, as well as your, you know, your state licensure, that type of thing. Usually the locums companies will, will streamline that process and, and help you through it, uh, expeditiously. Um, so if you, if you do negotiate with a hospital, you know, for a moonlighting contract yourself, you'll probably get paid more, but then you've got to be sure and factor in that malpractice coverage into that negotiation and, and handle that yourself. So I think the locums route is a good way to, to start and get used to the, the landscape. And then as you get more comfortable with that, I think, you know, if you can find hospitals where you can negotiate directly with them or, or other, you know, other, uh, physician groups you may be covering call for, that's probably going to be more fiscally advantageous. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And then the, the, I forgot to mention there are, there's this, this hourly setup where you get, a you know, a lump sum for X hours and then an hourly rate after that, there are some other places that pay a flat fee. So they may pay $3,000 a day. Um, but it's whether you don't come in at all or you work all day long. And so, I think the flat fees are better in the places where you're slow. And I think the hourly rates are better in places where you're going to be busy. And so you've just got to consider those options based on um, what, what job it is that you're, that you're taking. Okay. Um, yeah. One, one thing I thought I'd just point out, cause you mentioned the, like the, the SEP IRA and that's a, that's a really simple option to be able to, 
defer a quarter of your net income based on your moonlighting. Um, and then I think the ma- yeah, the other maximum is I think it's fifty seven thousand dollars. So I mean you'd you'd have to moonlight a ton to hit that yeah maximum. Never. Yeah, that would never happen. Um, but uh, just as an alternative um, option for anyone who's on this, you know, is making a consideration for um, saving for retirement with your moonlighting income, is um, the single four hundred one k plan. Um, right. It's slightly more complex and like the SEP IRA, you can often open those for free at like Fidelity or Vanguard. Um, they, it's very, very easy to open one up. Um, the single 401k plan, they, to my, to my knowledge, what I've experienced in the past is it can cost like 200 bucks a year or maybe 250 a year to administer. Um, but rather than it being a pers- like being limited by a percentage of your compensation, you can actually defer up to 100% of your compensation um, up, wow. to the, up to the limit of $19,500. So um, now, depending on how much you're deferring, you know, if you're not, if like, for example, like if you were, say your net income for Moonlighting was $40,000, under the SEP or the SEP IRA, you could defer $10,000, uh, but under the single 401k plan, you could defer up to 19,500. Now, maybe your cash flow doesn't allow you to do that. Maybe you need that money. So that isn't necessarily a better option, but if your moonlighting income is like extra, that's like beyond your budget and you could in theory uh, defer more than what the SEP offers, it's worth at least considering what the single 401k plan, um, you know, just, just doing a comparison and seeing if it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that sounds like another great instrument. And I think, you know, so many of us in my brother-in-law's a, uh, in wealth management in Atlanta, and he always likes to joke that doctors are his worst clients because, you know, we, we really don't know much about money um, unless you have a, you know, an economics background or, or an accounting or, you know, financial uh, background in some of your coursework, which I think is relatively rare for us, you know, most of us. And if you look in the, you know, the FI community on Twitter and, you know, um, Surgify is, is one, you know, military uh, financial blogger, and then obviously Y Code Investor as well. Um, I mean, there's certainly a lot of great content out there, and certainly some strong opinions. But I think the majority of us are are really not. We've spent so much time learning how to be doctors and and um, learn our our craft that very few of us are are smart with money. And so I'd say, you know, five years ago, I became much more intentional to not only educate myself, but start paying an accountant and get with a financial advisor. Um, that really helped me craft this strategy. So I really lean on their expertise for, for advice and much like you're suggesting with the, the individual 401k. I think that, you know, I think that sounds like a, a fantastic option and I would encourage all of our, you know, military folks, because as you've heard in this conversation, there's certainly some unique revenue streams and things to be considered um, and which, which instruments can be used based on, you know, different portions of your, your, income. So I would encourage everyone to get with both an, an accountant as well as a, a financial planner to, to help them find the plan that works, works best for them. Mm, yeah. And, and, um, while we're on the topic, uh, there, there are a lot of good financial advisors out there. Um, 
there are also a lot of people that don't know what they're doing because um, it's a fairly it's a fairly easy industry to get into as far as um, application and uh, you know education is concerned. Um, so, but there there are some really great resources uh, for. Um, uh, for, for medical professionals, uh, you and I both know very well about the, you know, the white coat investor blog. Um, and there, there are others out there like, um, you know, like there's a physician on fire, a uh, physician philosopher, uh, right. you know, th- these guys, they're, they're doctors who are like really into finance. Um, but then there's also several, uh, advisors that are really, really helpful with, um, working with physicians. And I, I tried to be, um, among them, but there's, there's a lot of people out there. So, um, you know, anybody who's listening, if you are, you know, if you're looking for recommendations, those blogs are a great place to start. Um, but Josh, I, I presume that you wouldn't mind people asking you and you could also ask me too. Like we're both on Twitter. What's your handle by the way? It's at Joshua Tyler MD, all one word, Josh at Joshua Tyler MD. Okay. Yeah. So like anyone who's listening, you want to like get, you know, get uh, some, you know, get some uh, ideas or discussion. Um, please get in touch. You know, jo- Josh obviously has a, a lot of experience and um, you know, even your willingness to come on today to talk about these things, frankly, is evidence of your interest in helping uh, younger ones. I really, really appreciate you sharing some of these things with us today. Yeah, absolutely. People can reach out to me. And if I don't know the answers, I'll certainly, you know, get you in touch with somebody that, uh, that does. I think a lot of people in their, you know, kind of place in their military medicine career, um, love and are passionate about uh, mentorship and, and helping the, the generation of folks that are coming behind us. And whether that be lessons learned or just career advice. So if, if I'm not the right person, I'll, I'll do my best to get you in touch with, with somebody who is. And there's a tremendous network of, of military physicians on Twitter, some anonymous accounts, but, you know, a lot of us know who those are and um, some that are, that are open and, and uh, certainly willing to, to discuss more on the record uh, type of things. But, yeah, there's a, Twitter is really a great way to connect uh, folks for these reasons. Very, very nice. Well, this has been so nice. Very great to have some uh, free flow of, um, of knowledge and experience and suggestions. And um, it doesn't end here. There's lots of uh, resources for any of you listeners to go to, particularly on the Twitter platform. Um, lots of people that you could talk to. Um, thank you so much, Josh, for taking some time uh, to speak with me today. Um, and uh, I'm sure we'll get to talk again soon. All right. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. I enjoyed it. Tyler Olson. That's, uh, that's me money mediator. That's the show. Thanks so much for listening to, uh, to today's podcast episode, uh, related to financial implications of pursuing funding for medical training. If you decide to do it through uh, the military route, you can follow me on Twitter at Olson Planner. That's at O-L-S-O-N-P-L-A-N-N-E-R. You can also visit my website, olsonconsultingmi.com. If you want to talk more about any points that we've discussed today, you're more than welcome to get in touch. The show is Money Mediator. New episodes every month. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.